Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Bossed Up's premiere episode. I'm Emily Aries, and this is Bossed Up, the podcast for women who own their power, know their worth, and lift as we climb. Today, I'm going to take it all the way back to the very beginning of Bossed Up to give you a sense of how I got started on this crazy journey. I'll also break down a classic career conundrum about whether to be friends or be the boss of the office and why that's especially tricky for women on the rise. I'll be joined by Sarah Green Carmichael, the executive editor at the Harvard Business Review, who also hosts a rad Harvard Business Review IdeaCast podcast and just launched the new Women at Work podcast from the Harvard Business Review as well. Stick around because you do not want to miss the great advice and the research that we break down around how to navigate those tricky office politics of wanting to be liked and wanting to be the boss. And before we wrap, you'll hear this week's Boss Moves Moment of the Week from an incredible member of our Bossed Up community. But first, I want to acknowledge that I feel like my entire life, like so many women, I have been getting grief for my ambition. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe it was just being called bossy on the playground or having trouble getting group project members to finish their share of the school project, navigating tricky office popularity competitions while trying to get projects done and keep everybody happy all the time. I feel like it's a lifelong battle to be any kind of woman with any kind of ambition, which the world seems to have something to say about. I remember when I was a feisty little intern in Washington, D.C., my first paid internship out of college. I had just graduated with my fancy political science degree in hand, ready to tackle the world. And I was given so little to do that I found myself a little bit bored at this national leading digital strategy firm that was helping shape the politics of the future. It felt like a really exciting place to be, but as an intern, I wasn't given a ton of responsibility. So you can imagine my excitement when a few of us interns were given a group assignment that really required us to be innovative and take initiative and be a little entrepreneurial about starting something new. I was excited about sinking my teeth into something new. Some of my interns didn't seem as excited. One of them was napping on her desk. And one of them, who had been there for two consecutive summers, generally didn't seem to like me very much, but I didn't let his grouchy nature get me down until one day he started to walk towards me kind of sheepishly walking up to my desk and sort of cleared his throat and said, Emily, I have to apologize to you. And I turned to him shocked and surprised because this guy who is a little bit older than me, he must have been like 19, 20, 21 years old, had never really said too much to me at work before. And he said, you know, what I did was super unprofessional. 
I cannot apologize enough. This wasn't personal. And I just let him go on and on and on as he apologized to me before I looked at him and said, okay, so I have no idea what you're talking about, but I feel like when I check my email, because he had referenced sending me a message that he didn't mean to, I am probably going to figure out what you're apologizing for, and I'll come to your desk when I'm ready to talk to you about it. So you can go now. And I looked, and he had G-chatted me accidentally some messages that he thought he was G-chatting with a friend of his who didn't work in our office at all. And he had said to his friend, yeah, this other girl in the office is really over the top, is you know, doing all this work. She's working so hard. And what she doesn't even realize is that they're going to pay her whatever they're going to pay her. She just needs to ride it out here this summer and just sort of, you know, she could just sit back like me. And little does she know that I'm getting paid more than her and I'm doing almost nothing. This 20-year-old intern colleague of mine accidentally bragging to me about doing less and getting paid more was a preview of a lot of injustice to come. Isn't this tale just as old as time? Women getting grief for caring, for trying hard, or God forbid, for not caring or trying hard enough? It seemed to me like no matter what I did, it was almost impossible for me to be a leader take initiative, start something new, take responsibility for a project, and have people like me at the same time. And that's a pattern that repeated itself later on. I thought maybe with a bigger title and a bigger set of responsibilities that were ordained from the hierarchy of a company that would go away, but it didn't when I was a state director leading a meeting when one of my colleagues, who happened to be a woman, said, wow, You're really intense about this, huh? Which is a really good way to take the wind out of someone's sails and deflate someone's sense of confidence for having the audacity to try hard at what they do. And it just took me back to the playground, to being called bossy, to being told that as a woman, my leadership wasn't welcome. And that's the question that led me on the quest to starting this community bossed up and really that we're going to unpack today with Sarah Carmichael from the Harvard Business Review. Because frankly, I am sick of women getting grief for our ambition. If we spend our entire lifetimes trying to perfect please and perform for everyone else around us, not only will we fail to undoubtedly meet somebody's expectations of us, but we also lose sight of our purpose along the way. And losing sight of your purpose feels awful. It feels detached. It feels misaligned. And I know because I spent years of my life trying to be who I thought the world thought I should be, trying to be a good girlfriend, trying to be a good daughter, trying to be a good sister, and putting everyone else before myself, hoping to someday, somehow, get permission to pursue what I wanted to pursue. But I was waiting for permission that was never going to arrive. And once I learned to own my unapologetic ambition, everything in my life changed. I had gotten really good, frankly, at caring less about wanting everyone to like me and staying focused on my leadership purpose and on my vision for my life, assertively designing the life that I wanted. 
But being a woman who dares to lead in today's world can come with some serious growing pains. That's why today's listener career conundrum is so on point. And I encourage you to join our community of courage at bossedup.com if you haven't already, where all the best conversations continue after each episode. But let's get right down to it with today's first ever Bossed Up podcast career conundrum coming to us from Christine. I have a question about female versus male bosses um, and just how when women are promoted, they always seem to have to befriend their direct reports in order to gain respect in the workplace, but men don't seem to have to do that. Um, I see it time and time again where I'll have a boss and if she's not super nice, bringing in treats, asking colleagues to hang out um, for lunch or after work for a happy hour, they don't seem to gain her respect, especially when a woman is promoted and starts having direct reports that are men. Um, It doesn't seem to work when a man is promoted that he has to work so much for that respect. So I would just love your take on this, and um, I hope you answer my question. Christine, that is such an on-point question, and I'm so glad you asked. This challenge of being a woman leader without everybody always liking you all the time and not necessarily having the time to be friends with everybody at work is something I know a lot about. And Sarah Green Carmichael, the executive editor at the Harvard Business Review, is the perfect person to join me in answering your questions. So Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to join you. So what do you think about Christine's conundrum, one that I think all women navigating all kinds of workplace and leadership challenges face on the regular? Yes, I have so many thoughts about this, and it is such a common problem and actually such an interesting one to explore. I know we don't usually think of our problems as interesting, but there's a lot of research on this, and I I think it is interesting. So I would just say at the outset, first, you know, while every organization is different and some are more sexist than others, um, this is a common problem that a lot of women face. And generally, there is this likability double bind for women where if you are perceived as really warm, you're likely to be perceived as less competent. But at the same time, if you are not perceived as warm, no one will see you as competent, confident, Um, someone they want to follow. So it's really a struggle that a lot of women face. And it's one that I think stems from our innate desire for people to like us, right? I think women and girls especially are conditioned to be sweet and nice and all things classically feminine, caring and supportive and helpful. And those are great things. But the conflict that exists, right, in the research we've seen this inverse correlation between Uh, likability and the characteristics seen as essential to leadership really create, like you said, a double bind for women or these tripwires. Harvard Business Review has published a lot of research on this. What do you feel like um, we can do with that data? How do women navigate that kind of a double bind? Yes. So the answer, right, is probably not what Christine wants to hear. I mean, the answer is that you don't really have a choice. People are going to think certain things of you and have expectations of you. And as a leader, you have to set your own boundaries with what you're comfortable with and figure out how to give other people what they need from you. Um, And that can be hard and punishing sometimes. Um, But I think, you know, what I would say is that the good news for women is that when you look at how leaders are rated in organizations, and there are some different scholars and researchers who have looked at thousands of 
feedback reviews of women from across thousands of organizations. And what they see is that female leaders tend to be rated higher. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that women, you know, do have to meet a higher bar to get that promotion. We know that. It's it's not good news, but it is what it is. And the second thing is that people really like having bosses who do those womanly things, who ask them how their weekend was, who empathize with their concerns, who lead through consensus rather than top down. So while it is a more labor intensive leadership style, I would say it's also a more effective one. How interesting. So what you're saying is all leaders could take a cue from some classically feminine characteristics of being more empathic towards the people we work with. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Like we should not what we should be doing is raising the bar for male leaders like they should do these things, too. We should have higher standards for them. So it's funny because, you know, the term bossy is often used as a negative label to describe women who are calling the shots. But what you're saying is that male bosses should be a little less bossy, too, and sort of temper some of that hardcore assertiveness and, you know, commitment to direction or setting the agenda with a little more listening and small d democratic practices. I love that. What do you say to folks who would argue that they don't have time for that kind of emotional labor, right? Because that's sort of an invisible amount of of housekeeping around the office to bring in cookies for, you know, someone's birthday or to um, ask about how you can be extra helpful on your way out the door if a colleague is stuck behind finishing up an assignment. What about the folks who would say, you know, women shouldn't be shouldering all that emotional labor? Yes, I think that's a great point. Emotional labor is totally exhausting. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) women are already really busy and don't have enough time to do these kinds of things. So I would say um, figure out what you can do that is warm, genuine, authentic and helpful, but without taking a lot of time. So maybe instead of bringing in homemade cookies, just pick up some donuts on the way in. You know, or, you know, instead of asking someone out for after work drinks, if you have to, you know, there's other places you have to be and stuff you want to do, maybe go out for a coffee with them during the workday instead. Um, Every manager, I think, should have a regular weekly or every other week check in with their direct reports. Um, That's a really important way to sort of keep tabs on people. But you can also use those one on one meetings that are part of the regular workday to just check in with people how they are, not offer to do their jobs for them, not that level of helpfulness, but say, how can I help support you? What's getting in your way? You know, what would be useful? Um, And really talk about that. So you definitely have to protect your time while still showing empathy. And it's a good reminder that it's okay to have fun during the workday, too. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not just task master to do list slayers. We can also take time during the workday to build morale, right, to hang out, to get to know our colleagues. Here's the thing. One of my mentors uh, early on, I think I was 22 or 23, said to me once, like, Emily, I know that you're going to be on the rise. And the minute you can, you'll step on me to get ahead. Whoa. And I know it was so jarring to me. And I felt like, oh, my goodness, I really like this woman. I thought we were friends and she was a mentor showing me the way. And even sometimes the friends and loved ones and women in our lives can treat women who are being ambitious in a way that feels like you can't win. What do you do when it's not just befriending the people who are reporting to you, but it's other folks in your life who sometimes throw shade at women's ambition? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And it's really tough to 
grapple with some of this stuff, especially when it's coming from an unexpected place. Um, like if you have a rival at work, you might expect them to stay stuff like that. <laughs> but if it's like your mom or your like beloved aunt or something, you might be like, whoa, what's going on? So I think you can in those moments, you can just say like if it's a friend or a, a family member, you can just say, yeah, I'm really excited about my career. You know, I'm really enthusiastic about it. I feel really passionately about what I do. And you have to kind of be OK with how they see you. I think that last part is very telling. It's you have to be okay with how other people see you. You know, I think behind Christine's conundrum is this underlying anxiety over the fact that, you know, yes, women are held to a high, sometimes impossible standard when they're rising as leaders in the workplace. So what do you do if someone doesn't like you very much? Sometimes the answer is like, there's not much you can do. <laughs> like, right. how do you how should women leaders deal with some people just not liking them? Right. So I think there's a couple things. One is you have to have boundaries around your own well-being. Right. You need boundaries to protect your time and you need healthy boundaries to protect your heart. I think if you are having a, a conflict with someone at work who could really damage your career, who has the clout to damage your career because they don't see you in a positive light, then you do need to figure out how to address that. Um, so you can say something as simple as, well, you know, I really am excited about my career possibilities here in this organization, but I am here to support your agenda and to work with you. So let's figure out a way to do that. Um, in terms of, of the likability thing, I mean, that's really tough. When I was taking on my first big project um, before I was a manager, you know, I, I was really young and inexperienced. My boss at the time said to me, your job is to do this project not everyone's going to like you, but it's not your job to be liked. And that was really helpful to hear because I just thought like, oh, it's not my job to be liked. Like this is like a newsflash. Um, so I think it's important to remember that, you know, people may not like every decision that you make. They may not even like you, but what they want to know, what they want to feel is that they have been treated fairly. Yeah. And that's not a gender thing. That's a human thing, right? Yeah. Everybody wants to feel that way. I think that's such a great point. For anyone, maybe you, Christine, listening or anyone else listening who hasn't been given that permission from your direct supervisor like you were, Sarah, this is officially us giving you permission to know that not everybody needs to like you. That is not your job. Um, I think that's such a liberating thing to hear from someone, especially early on in your career. I also have to shine a light on one of my, really my all-time favorite pieces of writing about these double binds that women face in the workplace today, which happens to have been published by the Harvard Business Review back in 2013. You all ran a cover story on September 2013's issue called Women Rising, the Unseen Barriers, really the unseen barriers that are still holding women leaders back. And this was covering research by Ibarra, Eli, and Kolb. And one of the fascinating things that came out of this piece, a piece, by the way, which I send out to every class of incoming women who are going to our Bossed Up Boot Camp program, which is our weekend-long uh, career transition boot camp. So everyone reads this on the way in the door is this concept of becoming a leader. The idea that leaders aren't born, you know, you're not born a leader or not, but rather it's this iterative process of internalizing an identity, of seeing yourself as the boss. How do you feel like women, especially women who are faced with these kinds of double binds on the regular, can 
cultivate a leadership identity can really see themselves as the boss of their lives and their careers. Thank you for mentioning that article. It's also one of my favorites. Um, So Herminia Ibarra did a follow-up piece, which wasn't explicitly on gender, but it was helpful in terms of the iterative leadership process you're talking about. Um, And that is called the uh, authenticity paradox. And what she talks about in that article is how at first when you try some of these leadership behaviors, it won't feel like you. It will feel like you are totally making stuff up and you will try different things and some of them will work and some of them won't. And for women, unfortunately, what tends to happen is that we don't get sometimes the validation when we try out a new leadership behavior. So we'll try something and the feedback we get is either nothing, no one responds, or we get negative feedback, like stop being so bossy. Um, but so there are sort of more hurdles here for women. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are organizations that are better at this than others. And then <laughs> there are women who just sort of figure out that they have to persist. I would say let's break it down with an example, right? I think the example that Ibarra writes about in that first piece is let's say you're working on a project with a few people at work. I was a very eager intern at a digital strategy shop here in D.C. at one point in my career. And I remember my fellow interns were very happy to be paid and to be seated at a desk in an air-conditioned office and to be doing whatever it is that they were told. And I was very bored because... You know, there was more that we could have been doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I was everyone's least favorite, most annoying intern, I am convinced at this point. But what I did was I'd say, let's call a meeting. Let's have a conversation about how we can do this project together. And so we were sort of assigned to this group project, which happens on occasion in the working world. And when you call a meeting, let's say I sent an email out to all my fellow interns, they can either show up and validate that I made a leadership move and that they're acknowledging my leadership, they're encouraging it, they're saying that this is valid, or they could not show up, right? A simple rejection of my request, sometimes very passively done and sometimes not so passively done, like a reply all email that would say, how about we don't? (laughs) Mm. But those are the kinds of, that, that kind of cycle of making a move, of accepting responsibility as a leader and saying, I'm gonna start this conversation so we can get this thing done, is something that not all women really are encouraged to behave that way, first of all. And then when you do behave that way, you might get that negative response or no response, which decreases the likelihood of little intern me ever doing that again. So, you know, how we internalize the response we get as women leaders to me is just as important. Like maybe it was not me. Maybe the tactics I used should be changed up. But I don't know. I'm curious to hear what you think about women who make a leadership move and it doesn't go over so well should do. How should they process that internally? Great question. So I would say if I am channeling the research of uh, Ibarra, Ely, and Kolb, what they would say is to keep your focus on your leadership purpose rather than how you're perceived or what went wrong. So instead of of sort of getting caught up in the kaleidoscope of other people's perceptions of you and wondering, you know, did people not come to that meeting because of because you know they don't like me or because they're sexist or whatever, um just tr- just try something else. You know, if your focus is to foster that kind of conversation and the, the formal meeting didn't work, um maybe try setting up an informal lunch instead or talking to people one-on-one instead of in a group setting. Um, and I think 
as long as you have a kind of purpose to guide you forward, then you can keep figuring out how to navigate those obstacles. The second thing I would say is that focus on getting better, not on being perfect. So I think as as women, a lot of us are, are conditioned to be perfectionists, um, and this can be an ultimately really self-destructive goal. And there's a good reason for it. You know, we know from research that women's mistakes are judged more harshly and remembered longer than men's, so it is really self-protective of us to want to not ever make a mistake. But it's not realistic. Um, so if you keep your focus on... I am just working on getting better and not on being perfect. Uh, then you can stay in a sort of growth mindset and it's much less stressful. And it's also a good way to keep moving forward when you just keep feeling the obstacles. I love that. It's such a great combination of of pieces of advice there because it's when you come across an obstacle, know that you can change up your methodology, right? Over it, around it, under it, however you need to get around it, get around it. And then at the same time, know that you are not your mistakes. I think that resilience is a huge part of how women leaders can continue rising in a world that's not always going to like us. <laughs> wow, Sarah, this has been such a great conversation. I know that you and I could probably talk about this topic for a few seasons of podcasts together. <laughs> but what do you want to see more women leaders do when they have the opportunity to lead? What kind of boss moves do you want to see more women leaders taking? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think as more women become leaders, we will see lots of great boss moves happening. Um, I do think that it would be negligent to not mention the one area where female leaders often do get rated lower than male leaders. So women leaders are rated more highly on literally dozens of competencies than male leaders. I mean, across the board, I, equally or better. The one thing that comes up again and again is strategic vision. And there is an article that we published in 2009 called Women and the Vision Thing that is all about this. And, you know, I'll be honest. I don't know if that's just bias. Like, do women share vision and then we just don't give them credit for it? Do they share vision in a way that people are not used to seeing as strategic vision? But I would say if you are a woman who is becoming a manager or a senior leader or has that aspiration, that is probably the one thing that you should make sure not to neglect because, Statistically, it is likely to be a, a sort of perception gap for you. And it's also the kind of thing where I think, you know, women are we're super organized. We are great executors. We get a million things done. We charge ahead. We solve problems. Uh, and we do it all like empathetically and with a smile. I mean, come on. But, there, <laughs> you know, sometimes I think we, when we are head down and charging forward on a problem like that, we don't get the credit we deserve for seeing the big picture and coming up with a strategic plan for the future. Right. Be audacious with your vision. Communicate your vision, right? Be assertive with your vision, which if there's any way that women leaders can get even better is to have the confidence, I think, to communicate what it is that we want to see in this world, which that's certainly the world I want to live in with more assertive women. <laughs> totally. And call it a vision. Do not be afraid. Do not say like, oh, and, and you know, this is my idea. But like, here's my plan to get to my vision. <laughs> Just call it what it is. I'm so glad to hear that from you. You're kind of validating all the work we've been doing at Bossed Up for years now, helping women clarify and communicate their visions 
So, Sarah, thank you, and thank you to the whole HBR team for the great work you've done. We're going to be dropping links to all the references that were made throughout this conversation in our show notes. And be sure to check out Sarah's other awesome work in the podcast universe with Women at Work for Harvard Business Review and IdeaCast. Thank you so much for having me. And now it's time for today's listener-submitted Boss Moves Moment of the Week. Hi, bosses. My name is Nicole, and I'm calling from Lexington, Kentucky. My boss move this week was going on maternity leave just 10 days after starting my brand-new job as an AD at the University of Kentucky. I wanted to call because it's kind of crazy that I just went on maternity leave after just 10 days in a new position. But I, I wanted to just share that this big boss move only happened because I made a series of smaller, seemingly little boss moves that made a huge impact and allowed me to take this crazy jump. I had to apply for a position that scared me. I was only 68% qualified for this job, and I, but I wanted it. I loved it. It spoke to me. Then after applying, I had to reach out to the big man in charge, and it is a man. I can plead my case for an interview, which felt super scary because I had to, in an email, say why I deserved at least a little speaking time to promote myself for this position. After I actually got the interview, to my surprise, I had to kill it. I had to kill an interview, 36 weeks pregnant. I had never felt so vulnerable and my least confident self going into that interview and shaking hands of the personnel that I am trying to convince that I could do this because nothing makes you feel more out of body than sharing your body and literally bringing your child into an interview with you. But I did. I killed it. I had to give myself permission to talk about my own awesomeness, which, again, did not come naturally. And I'm so glad I did because three hours after my interview, I get a phone call that they want me for this job. And so I received and negotiated these job specifics two days later, pushing for an immediate start date, which also felt crazy because who wants to hire the going on 37-week pregnant woman so that she can just go on maternity leave. But I pleaded my case as to why it was better for me to start now, to give me the time now to start doing the job and ask for that as part of my ask for more. And I got it because I asked. And that was super unnerving, but brave. And I I made the brave step. We are cheering you on, boss, and can't wait to keep up with you in the Bossed Up Courage community. And if you've got some boss moves that you're making, we want to hear from you. After all, you never know who you're inspiring when you share your come-up story. So give our podcast hotline a call right now and leave your own boss moves moment of the week in a voicemail for us. And you might just hear yourself on our next Bossed Up podcast. Call us now and leave your message at 910-668-BOSS or 266. That's 910-668-2677. Leave us a review in iTunes to let me know what you think of our new show. It makes an absolutely huge difference every time you leave us a rating that directly helps our podcast get discovered by others who might be looking for it. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, subscribe to Bossed Up the Podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and share this episode with a boss woman you think might need to hear it. Thanks so much. Keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and your dreams. And together, let's continue to lift, 
as we climb. Let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup. 